Have you ever been made to feel like you were missing out on something really special by something that someone else did or perhaps said? I remember growing up, there was this one time that my cousins from Indiana came and visited us and stayed the night. We set up tents in the backyard. Uh, the girls were in one tent, the boys were in another. and It was really exciting for me because I happened to be the youngest cousin. And so I was thrilled to death that I was going to be able to hang out with the older boys, I was going to be able to sleep with them in the tent, and I was going to be able to be a part of whatever the cool kids do. And uh, it was going to be great. And you guessed it, with our parents in the house, it sadly didn't take long for us as kids to start joking around and misbehaving. Until finally one of the oldest cousins in our tent said, Hey, I have a great idea. Should have been the first red flag. Let's wait until the girls are asleep. And then we'll go out there, we'll pull the tent pegs, and we'll collapse the tent on top of them. They won't know where to find the door. It'll be awesome and hilarious. Well, naturally, that was a brilliant idea to the juvenile male mind. And so we all agreed to lie there quietly and pretend to be asleep until the girls drifted off. And then we would spring our magnificent trap. I put my head to the pillow, mindful of the glories that were to come. The tales that would be sung of that night. And the next thing I knew, it was morning. (laughs) I had missed the whole thing. While I had been asleep, the older boys had done their dastardly deed, and I was devastated. Now, I shouldn't have been, because my parents didn't approve, and so all the older cousins got in trouble, and I didn't. But still, it broke my little seven-year-old heart, right? I was devastated. I felt like I wasn't good enough to be included. Like there was something wrong with me. It's a horrible feeling. The fear of missing out. It's also a powerful motivator. How many times have we felt the pressure of someone saying to us when we were growing up, come on, man, everybody's doing it. As if that mattered. For, every, for all that we know, everybody could be an idiot. But that doesn't matter. We don't want to miss out. We don't want to feel like we're not good enough to be included. We don't want to feel like there's something wrong with us. The fear of missing out is a horrible feeling, and it is a powerful motivator. That's why Satan uses it so often in the Christian life. We saw how Satan does this in the book of Colossians, did we not? He comes to those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ and he says through his messengers, you mean you haven't observed these laws? You haven't had these mystical experiences? You haven't followed all these fasts? All you're doing is trusting Jesus and attempting to follow him? Man, you're missing out. Satan tries to make us listen to his lies by making us discontent with Christ. One of the main ways that Satan sows this discontentment among believers is by disseminating false ideas about the Holy Spirit and His work and telling believers that they're missing out. Satan is so devious, he literally tries to turn one person of the Godhead against the other in our minds. I remember three such occasions in which this happened during my pastorate in Pennsylvania. The first occasion was directed towards me, personally, The second occasion was directed towards the leadership of our church, and the third occasion was directed towards the congregation as a whole. The first time, an older lady came up to me after one of my messages and said to me, can I share with you a word from the Lord? 
fresh out of seminary, I thought, sure, thinking that she was going to share with me something encouraging that she had read in her Bible that week. That's not what happened. At the entrance of the church, she suddenly lifted her hands, started shaking and quivering from the top down, and through many disjointed sentences began saying with a loud voice, when she wasn't pointing to the Shekinah glory dust that was supposedly somewhere on her arms that I couldn't see, that I was going to minister to millions, and I was going to become more famous than Billy Graham as soon as I learned how to hear God speak to me privately through the Holy Spirit like this woman could. Her message was clear. Though I had Christ... I was missing out until I learned to hear God speak the way this woman could. The second time, an individual from the community began to approach one of the leaders in our church, asking him why he wasn't speaking in tongues yet. This leader was told that if he didn't step out in faith and be taught by his denomination how to speak in tongues, Christ might be all he gets. And if this leader wasn't careful, he might really miss out on what God wanted to do with him through the Holy Spirit. His message was clear. Though this leader had Christ, he was missing out until he learned to speak in tongues the way this other man could. The third time, a once member of our church that had suddenly left without any conversation or discussion showed up during one of our services. This individual proceeded to tell me and another leader present that the reason why he was leaving was because he could see the future. And the implication was clear. If we could see the future like he could see the future, we would be leaving too. The message was clear. Though all of us as believers had Christ, we were missing out until we were able to see the future the way that this man could. In all three of these instances, the approach was always the same. Christ is good, but Christ is not enough. God, through the Holy Spirit, has so much more of the abundant life for you. So take our classes. Follow our meditation practices. Get slain in the Spirit. Because you're missing out. Now we've already seen repeatedly through our study in the book of Colossians that such views as those don't agree with what we know to be true about Christ, do they? Hope you can say yes. <laughs> 16 months. We learned that in Christ, as Colossians 1.19 says... All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. In other words, when we have Christ, we have the very fullness of God. Everything that God has to give, it's all in Him received the moment we trust in Him as our Lord and Savior. As 1 Corinthians 1, 5-7 says, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You were not lacking in any spiritual gift the moment you believed in the good news of Jesus Christ as your Savior. You received everything that God has to give you. And that's why Paul says later in Colossians 2.10, you are complete in Him. You are lacking in nothing. Christ is all you need. Christ is everything. He's everything. So the idea that you're missing out on something if you don't have all these private words or all these mystical experiences or all these prophetic visions, such teaching does not accord with what we know to be about the person of Christ, His supremacy and sufficiency. And second, such teaching does not accord with what is true about what we know from Scripture regarding the Holy Spirit. The only problem is many Christians don't know this because they don't know much about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is perhaps one of the most understudied and 
misunderstood person of the Godhead in our churches today. And then when you add to the mix ideas and perspectives like those given above, it compounds the confusion and spiritual chaos, which in turn is used by Satan to distract us from where our primary focus ought to be as believers, Christ above all. And so beginning today, I want to help us as a church to start cut through, cut, cut through some of the chaos with the truth by engaging in a short topical series focused on God the Holy Spirit. And over the next several weeks, as we work through this short summary study, we're going to slowly answer from God's Word four fundamental questions concerning the person of the Holy Spirit and His work. First, we're going to consider who is He from the pages of Scripture. That's going to be this morning. Lord willing, we'll make it through. Then we're going to ask ourselves, what has He done in the past? Followed next by, what is He doing in the present And then finally, we'll consider from Scripture, what about sign gifts? So when it comes to God the Holy Spirit, we need to be able to answer from the Bible who He is, what He has done, what He is doing, and what about sign gifts. See, often when it comes to the person who works with the Holy Spirit, a lot of us, because we haven't studied it very much, when we hear some other idea thrown out there, we kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, I mean, who are we to say whether they're right or wrong? I don't believe that's the correct approach. I believe that God's Word has been given to us and it gives us all that we need for life and godliness, including how He Himself works. And so that's what we're going to be studying as a church. When it comes to God the Holy Spirit, we need to be able to answer from the Bible, who is He, what has He done, what is He doing, and what about sign gifts? And so that's what's ahead of us as a faith family as we seek to grow in our understanding of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But before we go any further, let's ask the Lord to incline our hearts to His testimonies today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the wonderful opportunity it is to be able to open up Your Word. We thank You that here contained in these pages are words breathed out by You. We thank You that holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit to communicate Your inspired words to us. And even now, Your Spirit helps us to understand the things freely given to us. So Father, I pray that we would be given ears to hear and eyes to see, minds and hearts to believe the truth that You have revealed for us in Your Word. And I pray, Father, that as we study the Holy Spirit this morning, it would enlarge our hearts as we consider the largeness of Your heart towards us in Christ. Make and mold us This morning, Father, for your honor and glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're going to examine the person of the Holy Spirit this morning. We're going to examine from Scripture two main truths regarding the nature of the Holy Spirit, regarding who He is. We're going to see first that the Holy Spirit is divine, and then second, that the Holy Spirit is personal. When we consider from Scripture who is He, we need to understand first that the Holy Spirit is divine. In other words, the Holy Spirit is fully God. Now, most of us here this morning would probably take this truth for granted. Of course the Holy Spirit is fully God. 
But we really should not take this truth for granted. Because I guarantee you that you are going to meet someone somewhere, sometime, who does not believe that. For example, Mormon doctrine says that depending on context, the Holy Spirit is either a spirit being that was created by the Father, or is a spiritual pressure that is sent forth from the Son. In other words, they wouldn't say that He is the Creator. They would say He is created. Jehovah Witnesses teach that the Holy Spirit is simply God's power in action. That the Holy Spirit is simply God's projected energy. The United Church of God teaches in their doctrinal statement that the Holy Spirit is simply, quote, the imprint and power of God, but not actually God. The Oneness Pentecostal Church teaches that the Holy Spirit is simply the manifestation of God's regenerative power. And the next time you interact with a Muslim, they believe that the Holy Spirit is simply the angel Gabriel. In all these cases, these groups teach that the Holy Spirit is not a divine person co-equal with the Father or the Son. They say that the Holy Spirit is less than that, and often just a divine quality that is indistinct from the Father. So what do the Scriptures say? Do we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, who are we to say whether they're right or wrong? Or does Scripture speak to this subject? Scripture speaks to this subject. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is divine? Well, we can know that the Holy Spirit is fully God, fully divine, because we observe observe in Scripture these four truths. First, we can observe in Scripture His divine name. We know that the Holy Spirit is fully God because, frankly, He is called God outright on multiple occasions. The clearest example shows up in Acts chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there this morning, Acts chapter 5, where Peter is confronting Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the church. You see, back then... Uh, what happened in the Jerusalem church is that those that had goods would release them to the church so that the church could release those goods to those who were in need. And Ananias and Sapphira had said that they had given all that they had to the church, but really they had only given just a portion. And Peter says in verse 3 of Acts chapter 5, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. And then look at the end of verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? God. So there, Paul clearly states that to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God Himself. The Holy Spirit is God. We see another example of this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 Paul writes there, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? And then over in chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So Paul says there that to be the temple of the Holy Spirit is to be the temple of God Himself. The Holy Spirit is God. There are more I could have you turn to this morning. For example, Acts chapter 28, verses 25 through 26. Paul states, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And then he proceeds to quote Isaiah chapter 6, 8 through 9, where the prophet Isaiah heard Yahweh God speak to him. In other words, to hear the Holy Spirit speak is the same as to hear God speak. 
The Holy Spirit is God. Again, a similar passage, Hebrews 10, 15-17. The writer tells us, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after declaring, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, And I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's a direct quote of Yahweh God from Jeremiah 31, 31-34. Again, to quote the Holy Spirit is to quote who? God. And that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And here it is. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. We know that the Holy Spirit is God because first, His divine name. He is called God directly in Scripture. Someone might still argue though, well, the Holy Spirit is called God because there's no difference between God and the Holy Spirit. Right? They're just two names for the same person. There's no distinction between them at all. So let's look at next His divine distinction. The Holy Spirit, though fully God, is yet completely distinct from God the Father and God the Son. We see this most clearly in the Great Commission that is given by Jesus in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. We see this again at the baptism of Christ in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, when it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus, so that's the person of the Son, also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, so that's the person of the Holy Spirit, and then a voice spoke from heaven, that's the person of the Father, saying, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, all in one place. And there are many other passages, again, I could have you turn to. Paul's letter of 2 Corinthians ends with this blessing. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. One God, three distinct persons. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6 reminds us that there are a variety of gifts but the same Spirit. There are a variety of services but the same Lord. There are a variety of activities but the same God. One God, three distinct persons. And 1 Peter 1-2 tells us that we are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. One God, three distinct persons. They all state the same truth. The Holy Spirit is both fully God and fully distinct from the Father and the Son. So we know from scriptures that the Holy Spirit is divine because of his divine name, because of his divine distinction. The next proof of the Holy Spirit's divinity is divine character. If the Holy Spirit was truly God, we would expect him to possess the same divine qualities that both the Father and the Son possess. Is that what we see in scripture? The answer is yes, he is not just some divine eminence sent forth from the Father. One of the first divine qualities we know that God possesses is that He is the source of life. He is the source of life. The Father is described repeatedly as being the source of life when He is called the living God throughout Scripture and the fountain of life throughout the Old Testament. 
Likewise, Jesus himself is described as being the source of life in the Gospels as well. For example, in John 5, 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And John 1, verse 4 says, In him was life. So the the Son possesses life in himself. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit is described in Scripture as being the source of life also. Romans 8 verse 2 calls him the spirit of life. That same spirit of life that was hovering over the face of the waters at creation in Genesis 1-2 that gave life to all things in existence. Right? The Holy Spirit has the divine quality of being the source of life. Next divine quality that the Holy Spirit possesses is omniscience. That is, infinite knowledge. The Father possesses this being God. Psalms 139, 1-6 describes God the Father intimately knowing every human being's movements, thoughts, future, habits, conversational impulses, and every aspect of their life from beginning to end before they even live one single day. You see that in Scripture, you have to say, God the Father, He is God. That's what we call omniscience. The Son possesses the same quality. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, Matthew 16 17, John 1, John 2, John 4, Jesus is described as having such infinite knowledge as well of knowing people's futures and pasts, their thoughts and their actions. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit also has omniscience. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 tells us that the Holy Spirit searches the depths and comprehends the very thoughts of God. Think about that. In other words, the Holy Spirit knows the infinite mind of God. He knows the unsearchable judgments in the unscrutable ways of God. The infinite mind, the Holy Spirit knows. What do you call that? You call that omniscience. He knows what is unknowable. Next, omnipotence. That is infinite, unlimited power. Genesis 1.1 speaks of God the Father having this quality when He created everything that we know in existence. How? By the power of His words. Creating everything out of nothing. The Gospel of John regarding the Son is replete examples of Jesus' creative power where Jesus creates wine out of water, right? He creates bread and fish out of nothing. He creates new eyes, new legs, new muscles, new organs, new nerves, and life itself to dead beings out of nothing. As John 1.3 says, all things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. That same infinite, divine, creative power that is seen by the Father and is seen by the Son is also seen by the Holy Spirit who was active in creation as Genesis 1-2 teaches and who gives life to every man according to Job 33-4 and John 3-5-8. So the Holy Spirit has omnipotence. Next, omnipresence. That is all presence. Jeremiah 23, 24, God says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Right? God the Father is in all places. The Son also bears this same characteristic. Matthew 28, 20, what did Jesus promise? I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. Jesus is in all places. Guess what? So is the Holy Spirit. See, though Mormon doctrine teaches that the Holy Spirit cannot be in more than one places at once because He's only a finite spirit being, Psalms 139, 7-10 says of the Spirit, Where shall I go from your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The Holy Spirit has omnipresence. 
And I could go on and on. The Holy Spirit possesses eternality. He's not some created being. Scripture describes Him in Hebrews 9, verse 14 as being the eternal Spirit. In other words, He's not evolved to become a person of the Godhead. He has always been God. He's the eternal Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also the source of divine holiness, love, and truth. What are all these things? They're all divine characteristics that belong only to God. So we know that the Holy Spirit is divine, that He is fully God because of His divine name, His divine distinction, His divine character. And finally, we know that the Holy Spirit is God because He performs divine actions. The Holy Spirit is described in Scripture as doing things that only God can do. For example, and by the way, this is not exhaustive because I'm already going to talk later weeks about what the Holy Spirit does. But for example, the Holy Spirit is responsible for the creation of all the universe. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the regeneration of, intercession of, and sanctification of believers. And the Holy Spirit is responsible for the inspiration of God's Word. We'll look at all those in later weeks when we consider the work of the Holy Spirit, but I don't want want you to miss this point. You, You might take it for granted. You should not. When we look at the revelation of Scripture and we examine the divine name, the divine distinction, the divine character, and the divine actions of the Holy Spirit, it becomes clear that the Holy Spirit is fully distinct and an equal person of the Godhead, worthy of the same reverence, the same obedience, the same worship, and the same devotion as received by both the Father and the Son. Now, some false teachers will take this truth and they'll still attempt to twist it by saying, well, sure, the Holy Spirit is divine and He's distinct, but He's not personal. I mean, the Holy Spirit is just an impersonal divine force or something like that. They'll point out passages where the Holy Spirit is described in impersonal terms like a wind or fire, water, oil, a dove, or a down payment. And they'll argue that such impersonal descriptions could never be used to describe a personal being. Of course, forgetting that Jesus Christ, the most personal being that has ever existed, called himself the vine, the door, and other expressions like this. The fountain of water, the loaf of bread, right? This was Jesus. No one would argue that Jesus is not a personal being. They'll also point out passages where it says that the Holy Spirit can be drunk of and partaken. How impersonal, they cry. Forgetting, of course, that Jesus himself said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus was a personal being, yet used figurative language to describe his infinite being to finite minds. Nevertheless, you'll hear all these individuals point out things like this and then describe the Holy Spirit simply as a divine emanation or a divine unction, whatever that means, something that we can somehow manipulate if we pray just right or have certain meditations or just have enough faith. Then we could get this to happen for us. That's why it's important to note that this transcendent and divine Holy Spirit that we just looked at is also very personal. He's very personal. And that's the second truth we must know about the Holy Spirit. When we consider who He is, it's that the Holy Spirit is personal. We know this first because of His personal pronoun. The Holy Spirit is never described in Scripture as an it. Not once. Now this is contrary to what you would expect with the word spirit. The word spirit is, it is neuter and it is impersonal in the Greek, as it also is in English. And yet, uh, in other words, you would expect when you see the word spirit 
in the Greek that it would show up with the noun or with the personal pronoun it. Yet you never see that in Scripture at all. Every time the Holy Spirit is referred to, a personal pronoun is used, the personal pronoun he, not it. That's what it would say, by the way, on his Twitter account, right? He, him. Sorry. Not it, okay? Because it's a person. The best example comes from John 16, 13 through 14, where Jesus said this, when the Spirit of truth comes, does he say it will guide you? No. It says, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It is clear Jesus was referring not to a force, but to a person, the Holy Spirit. So we know that the Holy Spirit is personal because of his personal pronoun. Second, because of his personal attributes. Even modern secular sociology identifies three core elements to personhood. The existence of intelligence, the existence of a will, and the existence of emotions. Even according to secular sociologists, if you have intelligence, will, and emotion, then you are a person. You are a person. So do we see those three personal attributes when it is applied to the Holy Spirit? Or is he just some mystical energy field that holds the galaxy together? Well, the Holy Spirit clearly possesses intelligence. He teaches. John 14, 26 says he will teach you all things. He investigates. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. He testifies. Romans 8.16 says the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit prayerfully intercedes. Romans 8.26 says the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings that, cannot, that are too deep for words. He also speaks. Galatians 4.6 says the Spirit cries, Abba, Father. And we'll examine how the Spirit works next week, but know that he possesses intelligence. He also possesses a will. He also possesses a will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 tells us this, that all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually how? As he wills. The Holy Spirit decides what gifts to give to what believer. He has a will. And then in Acts 13, 2 and Acts 20, 28, it talks about how the Spirit appoints specific believers for service. He chooses people. He possesses intelligence. He possesses a will. And finally, the Holy Spirit possesses emotions. We'll look at this again more in the future, but He can be grieved, Ephesians 4.30 says. He can be quenched. He can be resisted. He can be outraged. And He can be lied to. How do you lie to an impersonal force? I've never lied to a rock before, have you? But I've lied to people. You can lie, grieve, and outrage a personal God. So we know that the Holy Spirit is personal because of His personal pronoun, His personal attributes, and finally His personal equivalent. His personal equivalent. We learn in 1 John 2, 1-2, through 2, That if anyone sins, we have an advocate. That word there is a helper in the Greek, a parakalitos. We have a parakalitos with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, 
there we see that we have a helper with the Father, an advocate with the Father, a helper with the Father. But wouldn't it be nice to have a helper with us? I mean, it's great that we have a helper with the Father, but I'm still here on planet Earth. I don't know about you. Wouldn't it be nice if I had a helper here present with me? Another comforter who would be just as much of a person as Christ is? Guess what we do? John 14, 16 through 17, which we read this morning, Jesus says this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another parakletos. He will give you another helper. He will give you another, that means another of the same kind, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. See, when, the whole, when Jesus went away, he sent another helper after his own kind, the Holy Spirit. Someone who would be as much of a personal helper and comforter as much as Jesus was when he was on earth. The Holy Spirit is as much a person as Jesus Christ. So this is who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is God, and he is a very personal God at that. That means three immensely practical things for you and me. I'd summarize it in these ways. Here it is. Because the Holy Spirit is divine and personal, it means that we as believers always have God's presence, we always have God's power, and we always have God's peace. Because the Holy Spirit is divine and personal. First, we will always have God's presence. Because the Holy Spirit is the personal presence, think about it, God is not far off. God is not far off. He didn't just imbibe us with power, right? He didn't just indwell us with ideas or wisdom. He came and He dwelt with us. He indwells us. We can walk with Him. We can talk with Him. We can learn from Him. We can truly know Him and be changed by Him forever. Having a living, breathing relationship with God is always an immediate reality for us who are in Christ. Always. God is not far from any one of us. In fact, he is so close to us as to actually enter and become one with all those who believe in Jesus. Right now, God is with you. He is in you. In you. Think about this. God is closer to you now than he would have been in the Incarnation. He is closer to you now than he would have been if Jesus was walking this earth. Through the coming of the Holy Spirit, he has truly become Emmanuel, God with us. Because this is who the Holy Spirit is, we always have God's presence. I am with you always. Second, Because this is who the Holy Spirit is, divine and personal, we always have God's power. 1 John 4.4 states this, He who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. Because the Holy Spirit is God and is Himself indwelling and empowering us, we can have full confidence knowing that whatever the circumstances God calls us to enter into in this life, we can be more than conquerors through Him who loves us. Because He has given us His Holy Spirit. The God who is in us and working through us can change us and equip us to do mighty works for the glory of Christ beginning in our own hearts. 
those sins that you think you have no power over, do not, do not speak against the power of the Holy Spirit. You have God's power. As Jesus Himself said, with God all things are possible. All things. Even the sanctification of our own hearts. Because this is who the Holy Spirit is. We will always have God's presence. We always have God's power. And then third, we always have God's peace. I mean, just think about it. If this is true, if the Holy Spirit is God, and if He is personal, and if this very moment you have trusted in Jesus Christ are indwelt by this Holy Spirit, then that means that God will always give you whatever you need for any circumstance, no matter what that might be. You know what I call that? Peace. Peace. Knowing that we always have the presence and power of God with us through the Holy Spirit should give us a supernatural peace that needs not fear any circumstance in life. This was Christ's application, by the way, for the person of the Holy Spirit. See, immediately after promising the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, Jesus says this in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In other words, the giving of the Holy Spirit is the giving of divine peace. Why? Because knowing that the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is in us, we can know that we are able to face and do whatever Christ calls us to. That we are missing out on nothing. Nothing. That is peace. That is a peace that this world can never know. It is a peace that comes through knowing that the Holy Spirit is divine and that the Holy Spirit is personal. This is who the Holy Spirit is. We ought to worship Him for His glory and His character. We'll begin to look at what the Holy Spirit does does next week, but for now, this is the Word of God which I commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until Christ, the One who is anointed, returns. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it reveals to us who You are. Your character, Your glory, Your worth, Your majesty, and Your works. Father, as we live in a world and in a time in which there is much confusion about how You are working in this world today, we thank You that we can come to Your Word, to the pages of Scripture alone, and recognize from its authority who You are, and how You are working in our world today. Father, I pray that You would show us many rich and wonderful things. There are many people that are confused and are troubled and have no peace because they do not understand who the Spirit truly is and what He is doing and can do. They chase after shadows And they ignore the substance that the Spirit is pointing to. Help us, Father, to be used by You to point them to the truth 
of who you are and what you can do. For with God, all things are possible. Father, knowing that your power and your presence is with us, the Spirit will never leave us, knowing that He indwells us, Father, help us this week, understanding that presence and power to be constant in prayer so that we might experience the peace that comes with knowing God is with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.